Well, Father, it's good to gather as a church today and to be encouraged and strengthened and just remind ourselves that we're not alone in this journey. Thank you, Father, for the great story about which we've been singing, that we're not a forgotten people and that you've loved us so much that you sent your only son to be born of Mary, to go to that old rugged cross on our behalf. Father, use this time now as we reach for our Bibles. We sit and listen quietly. May your spirit stir our hearts, um, clarify our thinking, and strengthen us in our faith. We commit this time to you, Lord, and ask that through the familiar story of Christmas, uh, you will remind us of uh, some very important truths that stabilize our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, I happen to notice, uh, scanning some of the news headlines, that Christmas is uh, under attack again this year from some atheist groups. Now, Satan's already done a pretty good job of distorting and morphing Christmas, don't you think? I mean, can you really imagine a strategy of a big fat guy in a red suit, reindeer that fly, uh, the whole thing? I mean, about the only part of that part of the story I like is mistletoe. That's a pretty good thing. But, um, I mean, just think about how caught up in materialism and in nonsense, our world really is. If you go to a kid's school program, uh, they'll not sing about baby Jesus in the average public school. They'll, they'll sing about grandma getting run over by a reindeer or this Rudolph with the bright red nose. And it's all fun. And it's not necessarily in and of itself wrong. But what an incredible distortion and distraction. It has to be a scheme from the evil one, the way it has taken over a Christian nation and dominated our mindset of Christmas. But I noticed, I think it was a Fox News headline, uh, um, I put it up on the screen here, that there's a billboard ad campaign and the atheists are a little bit wound up about Christmas and they um, are putting up some billboards and this year um, they're running them in the south, which was kind of a big step for them, um, down in Atlanta and some of the cities across the Bible Belt. They have been doing this in Manhattan. I had noticed uh, last year they did it and uh, Answers in Genesis, a creation ministry with Ken Ham, some of you are familiar with that, um, put a response up on the billboard in downtown Times Square. Um, I think, I can't remember what the, um, the atheist ad was exactly. The Answers in Genesis then responded with a big billboard right in Times Square, said something like, thank God you're wrong, um, in response to it. But um, notice uh, the bottom one is a little bit older one. You know it's a myth. This season, celebrate reason a play on the reason for the season. And the, uh, the billboard that they're running a lot in different places, this American Atheist National Convention Group, um, Dear Santa, it's got the cute little girl pondering, you know, writing Santa a letter. Dear Santa, all I want for Christmas is to skip church. I'm too old for fairy tales. Um, you don't know whether to laugh about it or to fall down and weep about it. I think the latter. Why do you think that atheists and skeptics care? If it's not true and they don't believe it's true, why do they care? What's the big deal? Why rent out billboards? Why attack these stories in our Bible? And I want to invite you to turn to one of our quote, I have my fingers are doing quotes, one of our favorite fairy tales, 
Luke chapter 1, I want to be very careful how I say that. It's not a fairy tale at all. They accuse us of believing fairy tales. And I want us to begin in Luke chapter 1, and I want us to understand a little bit why it's so important to undermine the story of Christmas. I want to put a little word picture in your mind. Um, I think you'll be able to easily picture arriving at the beach and whether it's the kind of house that you've rented for your vacation or you're taking a walk along the beach and you can picture and you always look, oh, that's a nice house and look at that. Many of the beachfront homes and the blocks around the beach are built up on big pylons. Have you noticed that? You can even park your car under them sometimes and they have big, if they're newer, they have huge treated lumber. Sometimes they have poured concrete post pylons. I want you to picture that Christianity is a house. The house of our Christian faith, picture it being built on pylons. Imagine waking up one morning on your vacation and you hear this kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. And you, what are you doing? And here's this guy in his atheist suit with his sledgehammer and he's down there pounding on the pylons underneath your house trying to knock out the pylons. Picture that a little bit because there are, um, there are certain doctrines, certain points of the Christian faith, certain elements recorded in scripture that the skeptic or the atheist would really love to do away with. It's as though they take their atheist hammer and they just pound it. They want to knock it out of there because if, if they don't, then the Bible is true. In fact, a couple of these things, and you could picture for our illustration this morning, picture that our Christian house is built up on four corner posts and one big center post. Four corner posts and one big center post. And, and I would suggest that this represents five of the key posts of the Christian faith, the pylons of the Christian faith that the skeptic would love to remove and that they continually and repeatedly through the centuries have hammered away at. The first one is revelation. It's revelation, that is, has God spoken to us through his word? So one of the corner posts of our Christian house is, is that God has spoken to us. And this is the question, is the Bible the word of God? And the skeptic and the atheist continually want to undermine uh, the revelation of God. Has God spoken to us or not? Um, in, in Romans chapter 1, it's interesting to observe there that this is the starting point in the mindset of someone who is rejecting the Christian faith or who is rejecting God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, it says in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, listen, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the starting point. They want to suppress the truth. So one of the big corner pylons of attack of the Christian faith, and the old atheist is just swinging away at it, is, is the Bible the word of God? A second corner post, and one of the other corner posts, is creation. It's creation. Are we created by God? They've done, a, they've made great strides on, and in fact, they've have influenced Christian thought on this to where many um, people who are Bible believing Christians have bought into the fact that there must have been a big bang, that there must have been evolution because the scientists say so. And even though there's all kinds of evidence against it, and so this post on our Christian faith, we could actually 
We could actually picture it on the corner of our Christian uh, vacation home. Hope you're not on vacation as a Christian, but in our Christian house here, the corner post, that corner post is actually getting the bottom moved over a little bit. I mean, they've been banging that thing and it's starting to skid over. It's still holding, but the atheists and the skeptics, they have to do something with creation. Why? Why have they taught evolution in our schools? Why will they mock you and, and scorn you at your university, if you speak up for creationism in any kind of an earth science class or any kind of a class like that, you will be mocked. Why? If you believe that Genesis means what it says, well, for one thing, that's the authority of Scripture, right? The other thing is, is if there is a creator God who made me, then who am I accountable to? I am accountable to a God who made me and who gave instruction as to how I am supposed to live, who laid down laws that matter, and I'm accountable to him, and I really, really have to get rid of him so that I can take hold of the wheel of my own ship. I can be the captain of my own fate. I can do whatever I see fit to do. I can make my own decisions. So the one corner post of... Revelation is the Bible, the Word of God, the corner post of creation. Another corner post that is regularly hammered away at is the, is the, the, one of the linchpin doctrines of our faith, and that's the resurrection. The skeptic is going to hammer away at the resurrection of Christ. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Another corner post for our word picture today is, uh, I'm going to use the word destruction. The end times. Is Jesus coming back? In 2 Peter chapter 3, it talks about this, how they, in the last days they will scoff and they will mock and make fun of you for thinking that Christ is going to return and that God is going to bring judgment on this world and that there will be a coming day of judgment and destruction. And they'll mock and they will say, just like he said, just like they did in the days of Noah, and they, you know, where is this coming of your God? Where is it? It's not happening. Everything just goes on normal the way it always has. It's not going to change, just like they did in time in Genesis 6 of Noah's flood. As Noah, that preacher of righteousness, warned them that there was a coming day of judgment, they mocked him, threw tomatoes at him, and scorned him until it happened. And so they knocked that out. They, skeptics and atheists love to attack this whole concept that there is a heaven and a hell and a judgment coming and that there is a destruction of this earth warned about in scripture. But the, the post that I'm wanting us to focus on is the middle post on our house, these four corner posts, this middle post, and it's the incarnation. The incarnation. incarnation. What does incarnation mean? The, the idea of the incarna. The carna is flesh, to be in the flesh. That God became flesh. And that's where our story comes in today. It is not a fairy tale. It's called a fairy tale by the atheists. Let's read it. It's Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. And we're actually going to pick up Matthew's account as well. And what I want to show you this morning out of this passage is why the skeptic and the atheist can't stand these stories, and this one in particularly, because he's hammering away at the post of the incarnation, and to do that, he has to, he has to knock out a whole bunch of other things, and you cannot believe the Christmas story and deny everything else the skeptic has to deny to maintain his position. So if this story's true, then he can't say all kinds of other things. You'll see what I mean in a minute, I think. It's Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel 
was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her, this angel did, and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, you can guess a number of things right away that the skeptic doesn't like, like the reality of a spirit world, angels, the reality of a real God who can speak to people. They try to destroy all of those things. Let's read Matthew's account before we uh, enter in earnest into our message here. Matthew chapter 1. Now mark Luke 1 and Matthew chapter 1. And, and remember that Luke was not an eyewitness. Luke was a historian, a researcher. So he went around and gathered the facts and put it all together as he interviewed people who saw and had heard. And he put it all together. He was a researcher. In Matthew, you have Matthew's account who was an eyewitness. Luke puts together the account of Mary receiving the information that she is the chosen one to be the earthly vessel through whom Messiah will be born. A human mother, no earthly father, okay, and Mary's the chosen one. Luke gives her account. Matthew gives Joseph's account. John and Mark do not have an account like this of the birth of our Lord. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Let's just stop for a moment and and just kind of take in the reality of the information with limited revelation that Mary and Joseph had to process. When Mary asked in Luke chapter 2, well, how should, how can this be? It was not a skeptic's question. It was not, oh, how can this be? Mary clearly believed that it was going to happen. What she couldn't get in her head was completely understandable, and that was 
by what physiological, biological process is this going to take place in that I am going to be pregnant. I believe that to be true, but I have not been with a man. Matthew affirms this in Joseph's account, and it reiterates that though they were betrothed, and in this culture in Israel, that meant that Joseph had negotiated a deal with Mary's father. They had an official legal contractual agreement. You couldn't just drop it. Joseph had built his house. He was getting organized. They were ready to come together as husband and wife. They had not had the wedding ceremony. They had not consummated the marriage physically in any way. And they had kept themselves pure. The purity of both and righteousness of Mary and Joseph is an outstanding example to our young people today. We have here Joseph emphasizing in the, in the story that where Matthew's giving the details in uh, um, verse 18 at the beginning of Matthew's account that before they came together. So Joseph can't figure this out and what a good man he was. Though he had a right to stomp and snort and do like so many of us would do when we're embarrassed, humiliated, plans are, dis- plans are broken and uh, we want to make sure everyone knows this wasn't my fault, it's her. Or he could have called for the nth degree of the law to kick in and take her outside the city gates and stone her. But instead, he just says he wanted privately, quietly for her to just go out in the country, write the certificate of divorce, break this legal binding agreement he had with her father and with the whole marriage arrangement. So he's considering these things. Now verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And How did they wrap their brain around that? She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. The name Jesus means Savior. The title of our message today is, it's not in your bulletin, but the title of our message today is, Christmas is for Skeptics. Christmas is for skeptics. Next Sunday, we're going to, Lord willing, focus on Christmas is for sinners. And then on 21st, we'll emphasize Christmas is for seekers as we have a three-week series. And we'll focus a little more on this reality that Christ came to save sinners. But that's what the word Jesus means. It means Savior. And he explains that in verse 21. For he will save his people from their sins. That's the words of the angel. Now verse 22, Matthew picks it up and he, he emphasizes and explains to us, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, parentheses, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did. You should underline those two words. It'll get you out of a lot of trouble. Young people, just do what God tells you to do like Joseph did. It'll save you a lot of grief. I love that about Joseph. He did what God told him to do. And he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus, exactly as the angel had given the instruction. Well, Christmas is for skeptics because if a skeptic would just understand what's happening in this story, you'll notice that the Bible never defends itself. You ever notice that? The Bible never goes out of its way to prove itself to atheists. And it starts in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. And it begins the story of the life of Christ. Here it is. 
You know why? Because there's only one way to come to God. And what is that? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith. Do you know that you cannot logic somebody into heaven? You cannot logic or argue someone into heaven. You cannot take scientific proof and present it in such a way that the person says, I got it, there it is, and goes to heaven. The only way to get to heaven is by faith, taking God at his word. The interesting thing about that is, is that proud people don't like faith. Proud, arrogant, atheist, skeptical type people want to have all the evidence in their own hands. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 makes it very clear. He says, if you come to God, you have to come this way. In faith, believing that he is. There he is. You know, some of you who can remember, the, hopefully most of you can remember when you accepted Christ as your Savior. It is most likely that it wasn't some apologetic line of logical reasoning and evidences from the scientific world that made you think you ought to get right with God. It was a conviction over sin and the reality that you knew to the core of your being that you are a sinner, that you have a creator, because God puts that in everyone. The knowledge of him as our creator, and we have to suppress that truth. And you came to God in brokenness. That's the only kind of people that ever get to God. Broken, humble people. We've been kind of emphasizing that in our Sermon on the Mount series. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what we're doing today isn't trying to necessarily prove the scriptures. What I'm trying to show is um, an example of how a skeptic needs to deny this story. Because if you don't deny this story, there's all kinds of things you have to believe that make you a believer. Not a skeptic or an atheist. So number one in our story, I want you to see that you cannot believe the Christmas story And we're in Luke chapter 2 to start with Mark, Matthew chapter 1, because we're going to flip back and forth, okay? Mark, Matthew chapter 1, but we're in Luke chapter 1. I said 2, I think. Let me just make sure I know what I said. Luke chapter 1 is where we are right now. Mark, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to go back and forth. In Luke chapter 1, we see that the reason the atheist and the skeptic wants to undermine this story or attack this story or call it a fairy tale is because, number one, you cannot believe the Christmas story and deny the accuracy and inerrancy of Scripture. You cannot say you believe this story and at the same time deny the accuracy and inerrancy of Scripture. What do I mean by inerrancy? The word inerrancy simply means that it is based on truth, that the words of Scripture are true, that what we hold in our hands is the Word of God and it is reliable, it is not false, it is true. It does not have error. And we have in our hands today a reliable Bible, an inerrant Bible, without error. It is the word that God gave us, and it is an accurate word. And the historical details of the scripture are accurate. You'll notice in your reading, and as you look around, and you maybe have had a a history professor in the university, 
And they want to always undermine the historicity and the accuracy and the inerrancy. They want to say that the Bible's full of errors and the things that happened in Scripture weren't historically accurate. But it's not true. And when we look, the first thing we see, we see that the Bible gives us a historical context. The city of Galilee, it's a geographical location. It's real people, Joseph and Mary, and they're descendants of David. And, and we see that it's, there is a framework of, of real history. And so one of the things they want to do is say, if we can destroy the history of the Bible, we can destroy the accuracy of the information in the Bible and prove that there's error in the Bible, then we would debunk the story. And if you can debunk this story, you can debunk any other story. But they can't. I was glancing through um, an interesting book. You might be interested in it. It's a New York Times bestseller. It's been fairly popular in the last year or so. It's by um, a pretty popular pastor and author right now. I'm not super familiar with all of his stuff. Some of his stuff is real good. His name is Timothy Keller. He's the pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. He's a contemporary. As far as I know, he's in his pulpit there this morning. And uh, Tim Keller wrote a book that I picked up called The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. I happened to open it to a, a section where he was talking about the very thing that we're talking about here. That you, you cannot believe the Christmas story and then deny the accuracy and the inerrancy of Scripture. And that's what skeptics and atheists want to do. They always want to point out flaws in Scripture Tim Keller admits that this really rocked him when he first went to university. I'm just going to read for you a minute. It's kind of interesting. I think you'll be able to follow easily. He writes about himself. As a student, I was initially shaken by this, by the fact that his professors wanted to undermine the historicity of Scripture, the accuracy of Scripture, and uh, the inerrancy of Scripture, that, that it's full of error when it's really not. As a student, I was initially shaken by this. How could all of these prominent scholars be wrong? Then, however, as I did my own first-hand research, I was surprised at how little evidence there actually was for these historical reconstructions. To my encouragement, the evidence of this older, skeptical view of the Bible had been crumbling steadily for the past 30 years, even as it had, has been promoted by the popular media through books and movies such as The Da Vinci Code. You've heard of that, I'm sure. He now goes on to talk about another author. Anne Rice was one person who was startled to discover how weak the case for a merely human historical Jesus really is. Rice became famous as the author of Interview with a Vampire and other works that could be called horror erotica. Raised a Catholic, she lost her faith at a secular college, married an atheist, and became wealthy writing novels about Lestat, who was both a vampire and a rock star. I hope you don't know about this. <laughs> it shocked the literary and media world when Rice announced that she had returned to Christianity. Why did she do it? In the afterword of her new novel, Christ the Lord, Out of Egypt, she explained that she had begun doing extensive research about the historical Jesus by reading the work of Jesus scholars at the most respected academic institutions. Their main thesis was that the, bi the biblical documents that we have aren't historically reliable. Did you get that? She began to study 
what leading scholars today are saying about the Bible, and she says their main thesis was that the biblical documents we have aren't historically reliable. There they go, attacking the accuracy and the inerrancy of Scripture. However, it goes on to say, she was amazed at how weak their arguments really were. Keller goes on now to quote Anne Rice. She says, some books were no more than assumptions piled on assumptions. Conclusions were reached on the basis of little or no data at all. The whole case for the non-divine Jesus who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got crucified, that whole picture which had floated around the liberal circles, circles I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case was not made. Not only was it not made, I discovered in this field some of the worst and most biased scholarship I had ever read. Isn't that interesting? For 30 years, she left Christianity because her faith was undermined by the fact that the accuracy and inerrancy of Scripture was in question. And she goes and does some study and she finds out that when we read about this Story in Luke chapter 1, it's exactly what it says it is. You cannot believe the Christmas story and deny, number one, the accuracy and inerrancy of Scripture. As we read on in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to flip to Matthew 1 now in just a second, notice right away that we have some details given to us. Gabriel, the angel, is sent from God, so we have the given existence of God, the atheist hates the reality of God, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, a real place, a geographical location, historically accurate. Now it says, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. And that triggers in us the Matthew passage where he talks about her being a virgin. So let's look back there and let's see what we see here. Notice as we look in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, that it turns out that this aspect of the virginity of Mary is a very important point. The angel has told Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, not to be afraid to take her as his wife, and that what's going to be conceived in her is going to be of the Holy Spirit. And it says in 21, she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. And all of this, Matthew goes on to say, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here it is, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And that is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So like 400 years before this, Isaiah gave a clue. He gave a sign. He made a prophetic statement. And here it is coming true. We will notice in Matthew's account that Matthew regularly references the Old Testament to document his arguments. And he's going to talk about the prophetic fulfillment of the Old Testament again, as he does in chapter 2 on this part that we know as the visit of the wise men. And they're talking to Herod, and Herod wants them to point them to Jesus. Look at chapter 2 at verse 5. And the wise men, they told him, Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea is where you'll find the baby. For so it is written by the prophet, verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's a direct quote, verse 6 is, from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. So Isaiah, hundreds of years before, made prophecies that were coming 
true. Micah made accurate prophecies. If you read on, Matthew is going to list another one, and these are the most familiar to us. There are many others that are less obvious, but these are pointed out to us right in the passage. This is what the prophet said. In chapter 2, look down where uh, this is when Herod, after Jesus says, uh, uh, a little bit older, and uh, Herod threatens to kill all the baby boys. And so Joseph is warned in a dream to go. And it says in verse 14, and he rose and took the child. This is 2.14 of Matthew. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Look what it says. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. What did the prophet said? In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, it said, Out of Egypt I will call my son. So God, through the threats of Herod, moved Joseph to go down into Egypt so that they would return back up into Galilee out of Egypt. And the prophet Hosea was 100% correct. And this points to the second reason why you cannot, you cannot believe the Christmas story and deny, number two, the prophecies of the Old Testament. The prophecy of the Old Testament. You see, if you say you believe the Christmas story, you have to believe the prophecies of the Old Testament. And the skeptic and the atheist refuses to believe that these prophecies are accurate and came true. And in fact... The fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in the New Testament is one of the strongest legs on which to stand concerning the very veracity of Scripture, that it's true. There are dozens and dozens and dozens, even hundreds of Old Testament messianic prophecies from a variety of times in the life of Christ. Not only his birth, but also his life and ministry, as well as his death, his burial and his resurrection, as well as his future coming. And it was prophesied over and over and preached about by Peter and Acts and others. And what did they do? They always quoted the Old Testament. This is why it said, this is why it said, this is fulfilled before your very eyes today that Jesus himself said that. And he would quote Isaiah, this text is fulfilled right in front of your eyes. And if you, if you say you believe the Christmas story, you have to believe the Old Testament prophecies are true because it's, it's part of the warp and woof, it's part of the essence, it's part of the fabric of the Christmas story. And so if you're an atheist, you have to put up a billboard and say, don't believe those fairy tales because otherwise you're going to end up believing Scripture. And there's nothing that scares an atheist more than the thought that they might someday Believe there's a God. First of all, you cannot believe the Christmas story and deny the accuracy and inerrancy of Scripture. Secondly, you cannot believe the Christmas story and deny the prophecy of the Old Testament. Thirdly, I want you to see, and let's go back to to Luke real quick. And notice in verses 31 and 32 and so forth, in Luke chapter 1, What kind of baby this is. He will be great, it says. Um, Let's pick up verse 31 of Luke 1. I warned you to mark these two passages. We're going to flip-flop back and forth. And behold, verse 31, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. We've already emphasized that the name Jesus means Savior. Verse 32, he will be great. Who's he? That's this baby that's going to be born. Look what it says about him. And this is a prophetic utterance as well. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. He is the Son of God, the Most High. Same in essence. 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob and his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Listen, at the least, you have to say this is no ordinary child being born. No ordinary child. Now flip back to Matthew 1. Let's see what Matthew says. And and he says in verse 23 that we just quoted as a piece of prophecy from Isaiah. The virgin shall conceive, verse 23, chapter 1, verse 23. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. We just talked about that. And look at the second part. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Listen, the third dynamic of the Christmas story that comes out so clearly That if you believe the Christmas story, you have to believe in the deity of Christ. That's why this story is targeted so much. This has to do with the incarnation. Remember I said the center post on on the house of our Christian faith? There are many posts that hold us up in our faith. But these crucial doctrines that hold us up, the center post is the incarnation. Because if Jesus isn't God, and if Jesus never came from God, and God never sent Jesus then we are a wretched, lost group of sinners. And it's not true. And Jesus wasn't God. And he didn't rise from the dead. So then that post is, ki- is keeled out, kicked out. You cannot say you believe the Christmas story and then deny the deity of Christ. And skeptics and atheists make their living denying the deity of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they hate this story. Listen, this was no normal child. He was God in the flesh with us. And do you remember later in his ministry, and we'll see this in Matthew's gospel, that when Jesus made the Pharisees and the Sadducees the most upset to where it says in Scripture they would gnash their teeth, what was it that he said? He claimed to be the Son of God. And remember at his crucifixion, when they had that kangaroo cord and they were trying to convict him of something so they could put him on the cross and they twisted everything and they got the crowd to scream out for Barabbas instead of Jesus. What was it that he finally... They, he says he's the son of God. Put him on the cross. Why? Because they understood that when he said he was the son of God, he meant I am God in the flesh. I am one in nature with God. I am of the same essence as God. I am him. The Son of God. They hate that. If you say you believe the Christmas story, you have to believe in the deity of Christ or you don't believe the Christmas story. Not this one. You might believe the one about, you know, your two front teeth, but you don't believe this one. In Matthew chapter 21, let's just wrap up and with a couple more thoughts and look up at verse 21. It says, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. See that? He will save it. Listen, if you believe the Christmas story, here's something else you have to believe in. You have to believe that people are sinners. You believe in, number four, the depravity of man. You cannot say you believe the Christmas story and deny the depravity of man. At the heart of the Christmas story is the reality that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. How about that most familiar of all incarnate passages, John chapter 3, how about verse 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Why do we have to perish? Because we're sinners. 
You should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. It's not automatic. Paul was so clear, arguing his case, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of our sin is death. And the whole point of the Christmas story is that as God looked out on the world, just like in repeated waves before that, as far back as the fall and as far back as Noah's flood, when God looked out on the world and all he sees is wickedness, he is a seeking God, he is a merciful God, and he does something about it. And just like he sent an ark, he sends, in this case, the ultimate ark, Jesus, get in the ark and be saved from your sin. That's why he did it. Out of his love and his kindness... He saw a world of sinners and he came to seek and to save that which was lost. We're going to talk more about this next week. This week, Christmas is for skeptics. Next week, Christmas is for sinners. But you cannot say you believe the Christmas story and deny the depravity of man. Back in Luke chapter 1, let's just look at uh, wrapping this up and notice that what one of the things that is striking in the story is that miracles take place, right? You have Mary pondering the reality of how do I get pregnant without a man and it is a miraculous conception do not be deceived by teaching you might have had in classes at your church when you were a child if you went to different churches where they teach that the immaculate conception is that Mary was conceived in sinless perfection therefore she was qualified to have the baby Messiah In certain church dogma, they teach that Mary is the one who had an immaculate conception. That's not true. The immaculate conception is really only this. It is that Mary was made pregnant by the Holy Spirit. It's mysterious. It's it's miraculous. What do we know? And so the skeptic and the atheist, they, oh, look at that. You also have in verse 36 of Luke chapter 1, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age... This is an old woman who all her life had been barren and now was far beyond childbearing years, much like Abraham and Sarah reminds us of. So this, in essence, is a miraculous birth as well. There are numerous remarkable births in Scripture. This is the mother of John the Baptist. You cannot say you believe the Christmas story and deny the authenticity of miracles. You cannot say you believe the Christmas story. This would be number five if you're making a list out of these. The authentic- you cannot say you believe the Christmas story and deny the authenticity of miracles. And why is it that we don't have a problem with miracles? Listen, miracles by definition cannot be explained by natural cause or they wouldn't be miracles. So obviously an atheist or a skeptic isn't going to stand for this because they don't believe in a spirit world. They don't believe in God and angels and that there's any other outside working force. I guess they created like the force and their inner force and their inner energy. I don't even get that stuff. It's pure paganism is what it is. But we don't have a problem with miracles because miracles by a God who spoke the world into existence, who's an all-powerful God. Look at verse 37. It says here, here's the answer. For nothing will be impossible with God. Let's say that together. For nothing will be impossible with God. Say it again. For nothing will be impossible with God. The sixth thing is that you cannot, you cannot say you believe the Christmas story and deny the sovereign authority of God. You cannot say you believe 
this Christmas story and then deny the sovereign authority of our great God. Skeptics love to denounce miracles. They love to to renounce and denounce the sovereign power and authority of God. Well, there's some thoughts for you as we wonder at a billboard paid for by an atheist group. Why does it matter to them? Because you cannot believe the Christmas story and then deny, number one, the accuracy and inerrancy of Scripture, and they do that all the time. Number two, the prophecies of the Old Testament. You cannot believe this story. And number three, then deny the deity of Christ. They make their living on that one. You cannot believe this story and then deny the depravity of man. You cannot believe this story, say you believe this story, and then deny the authenticity of miracles. The story is laced with miracles. You cannot deny the Christmas, you cannot believe the Christmas story and then deny the sovereign authority of God. You see why they got to get rid of this story? Because the major doctrines of the Bible all just kind of ooze throughout the story. All of these realities. So let's take a couple of don'ts home with us. Don't number one. Don't you say, don't you say you believe this story and then not believe anything else that we listed. If you say, if you say you believe this story, you understand that you're saying that Jesus is God. If you say you believe this story, you're saying that there is a God and that he is intimately involved with people. He knew Mary. He spoke to her. He is not a God far away. He is a God close by. If you say you believe this story, you believe in miracles. If you say you believe this story, then you believe that you're a sinner. And if you say you believe this story, you believe there's only one way to get out of that sin. And that's the other don't. Don't say you believe this story and then don't believe everything else. And number two, don't miss the whole point of the story. We have a rescuing God. And he rescues us from our sin. Pretty important story, isn't it? It's very, very familiar. Know it inside and out. Laced with all of these realities that the person who wants to deny God cannot look at. So they don't want to go to church and hear more fairy tales. You know, I was thinking um, at Bakerton this morning, I called him out as an illustration on this point. Many of you know Woody Beto. He started this church. He's told me many times about the day he got saved. It was a Sunday morning. And he was a hard-hearted man at age 42, a very logical, systematic thinking man, uses reason, thought he was very smart, an electrical engineer. And sitting in a little country church, he says, I can't remember what the preacher preached about. All I knew is that I was a sinner and I needed to be saved. Can I emphasize again, you don't logic your way into heaven. I think the atheist is trying to logic his way into heaven. You enter heaven by grace through faith in Christ alone. And remember that faith by definition, if you can explain it, is not faith. Faith by definition cannot be explained either. That's why we don't like it. It's so awkward. But when you're convicted of your sin, you know it. And when you realize that Jesus is the Christ and he died on the cross for your sin, it's undeniable, isn't it? It's a spiritual reality. What a great time of year to acknowledge that the baby grew up 
did miracles, authenticated his message, went to the cross, was in the grave three days, could not stay dead. The miracle would have been if he stayed dead. He was God in the flesh. He rose from the dead, triumphant over death, hell, and the grave, and he'll be your savior today if you'll humble your heart and come to him in faith, not in logic. Let's pray. Father, would you stir our hearts today and open blind eyes. Help us to realize the purpose for your coming. Father, if there's one here today who needs to admit and acknowledge their sin and humble their heart, would you please convict them right now? Thank you for your grace and mercy and for providing such a great salvation in Christ. Let me stop praying for just a second with your head bowed. Let me just say to an individual or so who might be here searching, and you've been skeptical, but you recognize your sinfulness before a holy God. You understand that Jesus came to go to the cross to put your sin upon himself. He paid the penalty for your sin. That's why it was important that he be a sinless, perfect human being. That's why he didn't have an earthly father, but he was inseminated by the Holy Spirit in Mary. He was all human. He had a mother, but he was all God. The Holy Spirit brought him from heaven, so to speak. And he qualified to be the only sinless, perfect person. And he transfers the debt of your sin upon himself, goes on the cross willingly, according to the Father's will, pays the price for your sinfulness. Now is where your faith comes in. Do you believe that to be true? Do you acknowledge that you're a sinner? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he carried your sin to the cross? And will you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Then you'll be saved. Don't miss it. I can't logic you into heaven. I can just explain to you what the Bible says is true and let the Spirit of God open your eyes. That's why he came, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Believe in him today, my friend. So, Father, thank you for this great message of simplicity, of your love for us, that you did not abandon us. You provided a way for us. Help us this Christmas season to truly be worshipers. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.